Oh, good morning. My name is Russ, a very grateful recovering alcoholic. Okay. Usually on Sunday mornings I was uh, drunk and getting up and getting ready to go in the pulpit to deliver the message for the day and keep everybody happy and tell them what terrible, miserable sinners they are and that they're going to go to hell unless they straighten up. This morning I'm standing before you a little bit different. I, I don't drink anymore and I haven't found it necessary to do that for quite a period of time and uh, for that I'm grateful. Although I am confused this morning, I need to tell you that. Wednesday or Thursday, Friday night, rather, I heard Rochelle say that she knew that she knew. And then she got around people in the program and she said, I didn't know that I knew that I knew. And then she said, I knew that I knew that I knew, but I wasn't sure that I didn't know that I knew. And then I heard Jim last night carry on. <laughs> Something about it. he said, I shouldn't know that I didn't know. And then there was that great spiritual awakening he had, you know, when he said, well, I didn't know that I didn't know that I didn't know that I didn't know. And then he got to hang around to people in the program and he said, I know now that I didn't know what I didn't know. And I know now that I didn't know that I didn't know that I didn't know I didn't know. And I thank God for both of them that they got straightened out. I want to very humbly thank the committee for inviting me to come back again. This is a real pleasure to uh, see a lot of friends that I met at that time and also to have the chance to share with you my experience and my strength and my hope. I remember a um, story of an old drunk and his family got fed up with him, came home every night drunk and all that kind of stuff and he had a practice. He'd come when he was drinking until he passed out. So on this occasion what they did is that when he passed out, they took him out, put him in the station wagon, took him out to the local cemetery, and buried him with only his head sticking out. And the next morning, the sun came up, and the birds were chirping and singing merrily, and the old drunk woke up, and he said, My God, he said, it's resurrection morning, and I'm the first one up. And that's kind of, I guess, the way that a lot of us, or at least I did, approach life. I thought, man, this is great. You know, no matter what's happened. And I was up to my neck in all kinds of problems. I was up to my neck in terrific guilt and shame. And uh, I was the first one up. And the first thing I did every morning and the last thing I did every night was to take a drink and hope that I'd get through that. I need to tell you that I'm not here this morning to try to entertain you, although, you know, we'll have a couple of good uh, little jollies along the way, I think. And I'm not here to impress anybody because uh, I left that calling behind me many years ago. And uh, I'm also not here to uh, educate you because you probably know as much as I do, if not more. But what I am here for this morning is to tell you how a loving God, a very loving God, took an old drunken preacher who didn't know how to deal with success, who was an arrogant egotistical, know-it-all preacher who, who lost control over alcohol and how this loving God turned his life around and brought him to the point that he can stand before people like you this morning and say that I thank the God of my understanding that today I am very happy and very joyous and free. 
and that I've been given the gift of sobriety and everything that goes along with that, and that so long as I walk with God, I know that everything's going to be okay. My early life was one that was uh, nothing spectacular. I think a lot of you experienced the same thing. I was one of those people that I, I, I just felt that I never fit. Uh, in my family, my mom and my dad, uh, who was a very heavy drinker, I had a couple of brothers and I had a sister. But, but somehow I just never, I never fit in there. I always felt like the little kid that was off to the side of life, and uh, I didn't really know what was happening. Uh, I was a person who became a person who never learned how to feel. Uh, I always felt that somehow I lacked that power, and I wished to God someday I'd find a, a position where I could have all the power that we wanted. Maybe that's why I got into the ministry, because I'll tell you something. You do a good job for people, you get all the power you want. You can really control and guide and direct the lives of people, and that happened to me. Uh, I grew up and I went into the service. I did a little bit of drink there. Well, I did a lot of it, to tell you the truth. And I uh, came home uh, from the Second World War, and, and then I quit. And uh, I went into the uh, seminary, and I studied there, and, you know, graduated and things like that. And uh, my alcoholism was not, in a, was not a real problem, particularly at that time. I drank, but I knew when to quit. And then when I moved to northern Illinois and took a church there of 3,800 people, uh, I became a workaholic and I didn't know what to do, and uh, so I drank. And there was a lot of stress and strain, I guess, from what I understand now, and uh, I did that. There were a lot of things that happened. I won't go into big drunk log because you all can probably top me anyhow on a lot of things. But there were a lot of strange things that began to happen in my life. I know that when I would do a wedding, you know, I'd go there and, and afterwards I'd be the first one at the bar. And up in northern Illinois, all wedding receptions are wet. They are not dry. So I didn't have any problems, Jim, getting around and getting that stuff right away. It was handy. And so I'd always order a double. And I'd just get drunk every time. And they'd throw this yellow cornmeal out there on the floor. And they'd bring this band. And they'd start playing. And I'd get out there and just dance like a fool. And I'd do the splits. And then I couldn't get up. And then they'd help me get up, you know. My I hear, I'd hear some of the folks in the church say, isn't that wonderful? Our pastor is having a wonderful time, and he deserves it because he worked so hard for us. See, now most people thought I was wonderful because I'd go make hospital calls at 2 or 3 in the morning and visit them in the hospital and talk to them, and I'd say, I'm here because it's nice and quiet. But they didn't understand why I was there that early. I was there so that I could get that stuff out of the way so I could get back to doing my drinking uh, during the day. And that's the way it progressed. I used to give money to the children. That was totally unthinkable as far as I was concerned. And the next day they'd say, well, gee, Dad, thanks for the five bucks you gave me. I said, I don't remember giving them any money. But that's what I did. I had a real neat little habit of buying my booze. I'd go to five little different towns around there. Once every fifth week I'd show up. And let me tell you, I always wore my collar. And I'd walk in and they always be sure that they were Catholic stores. And I'd walk in and they would say, hello, Father. How are you today? I'd say, fine, listen, we got, we got a bunch of dignitaries coming over to the parish one of these days, you know. We're going to have a little party for the bishop and the monsignor and all the rest of them. So look, you know, do me a favor. Can I have a little break on this? Because I come from a real poor parish. And they would say, no problem. I've got most of my liquor cheaper than any of you ever did. 
you know, 25, 30% off every time because he wanted to help the cause. <clears throat> there is another person that I have to tell you about that is a real interesting part of this thing, and that is, that's my wife, Barbara. And to this day, I still haven't got the slightest idea why she stayed or why she put up with me or why she's still around. But we'll be married pretty soon, 46 years. So that says something about the power of AA, and it also says something about the power of Al-Anon. And I'll praise Al-Anon for that. I'll learn more cute little sayings from her than anybody in the whole world. Things get tough, I'd say, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, bitch. Hope it works out for you. You may be right. And all kinds of good things like that. But at the time, you know, I have to tell you this, I, I very, well, what I did is I called her a psycho bitch. Because, I mean, this woman could bitch. And uh, she was good at, uh, she knew the Bible and all that kind of stuff, you know. So every time I'd do something, she'd just tell me, say, you know, God's going to punish you for this. You're going to go straight to hell. You think just because you're a preacher, you're going to get by. You're not. You're going straight to hell. And she would say to me, shame on you. Shame on you. Don't you realize that you're hurting your children and you're destroying our life? and everything else. And you know, all I really wanted to do, if she would have let me alone, all I really wanted to do was just to serve these wonderful people and drink. And she couldn't figure that out. I finally got to the point in my life, and I, I think this is really sad for me, uh, I don't know if it is for you, but it was for me, that I didn't care. And that's not the way God made us. You know, my Creator made me to be a caring person. And when I drank alcohol and, and did that, I just didn't care. And I didn't care about myself, and I didn't care about God, and I didn't care about my family or, or anybody else. And I finally came to that point in my life, as it describes in the big book, you know, and, and this was a terrible blow to me, that I came to that point of pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization of my life. That is not the way... My Creator made me. And I had all kinds of problems with myself. And uh, I, I would go upstairs a lot of times at night if I ever got up there and I'd look in the mirror and see this drunken creature looking back at me. And, and then uh, I would cry. And I would say, oh my God, you know, my soul is restless, oh Lord. And I will only find my rest when I find my rest in you. And I'd cry some more, and I'd go to bed drunk every night and get up the next morning and celebrate the forgiveness of God and the grace and the kindness that he shows to poor old preachers like me. And when I came to my senses and finally did something about what my problem was, you know, it just dawned on me, for, for all of those years and for all the drinking that I did and, and for all the caring that I never did because I couldn't, I asked myself the simple question, for what? For what? And I looked back and all it was was just some alcohol, that, some poison that I was putting in my body on a regular basis. And, and just for the thrill of knowing that I didn't have any problems and I didn't know anything about anything or anybody when I drank. And that was okay with me for a long time. So alcohol became the solution to all of my problems. It was my answer uh, to everything that was happening in my life. And uh, I had a walk-in liquor closet, which was the fruit cellar in the basement. I'll tell you what, I never ran out of liquor. 
And uh, I guess they really had a party when they finally got hauled off and quit because they cleaned that place out and, and had a good time. And I've often wondered, you know, why did God allow all of this to happen to me? And then I began to realize that I didn't know and I didn't know and I didn't care. And uh, I'm not sure why it all happened. All I know is that today it's different. Today my life is different. I do not do any of the things that I did when I was drinking before. And anyhow, there was a real special time, you know, when, when uh, the psycho bitch was at it. And I recall that, that one Saturday morning I was just laying on the floor with my collar on in the front room, not bothering a soul, just laying there. And she came up and she kicked me right in the ribs and she said, get up, you're sick. We are going to the hospital. So I got up and they hauled me over to Rockford uh, Hospital and Swedish American there and went to the fourth floor where I had visited many sick patients before at the psycho ward. And she had made arrangements to talk with the doctor there, the psychiatrist. And I remember walking in and sitting down in Dr. Henry's office and he said, Barbara, you seem to be really upset. What's going on here? And she proceeded to tell him everything I ever did. He's destroying my life. He's destroying the church. He's going to blow up the town. The children can't stand to be in his presence anymore, etc., etc. Incidentally, I have eight children, which proves that preachers do more than talk on Sunday morning. <laughs> and, and for those of you that kept track, last time I had 21 grandchildren. I now have 24. Not bad. And I love all of them to peace and just love to be with them. Have a wonderful time. And anyway, after carrying on like that, you know, why Dr. Henry looked at me and he said, Reverend Killian, he said, what do you have to say about all this? I just sat up straight in my chair and I found my best clergy voice and he said, well, Dr. Henry, I'm really concerned about Barbara. I said, she's been carrying on like this for ages. There's something wrong with her. So he kept her there. For 30 days. For 30 days. And while she was there in those 30 days, I wasn't going to talk to the bitch. Boy, I went out. I talked to the important people in the church, and I just told them, I said, you know, the cheese slipped, the cheese slipped off her cracker. She's rowing with one oar these days. She needs all the help that she can get. So when she comes out, I want you to love her and be kind to her and treat her with decency and respect, but don't believe a word she tells you. And I want to tell you that's the way it was, because they loved me and they trusted me. And that's the way it was. I dropped her off at a wedding 60 miles from home in a blizzard in northern Illinois because she was bitching about my driving the car drunk. I went home went to bed. And I'm not proud of any of those things. And those are things, you know, that I just happen to remember from the past. And every time I just get a little bit too big for my britches, I remember where I came from. And that's very helpful to me to stay in that thing. But anyhow, things finally got to the point they were so bad that as a good alcoholic, I just ran away. I left the church and I left the home and I left the children and everything else. And I went off on a two-week binge over to South Carolina to visit one of my brothers. And I remember nothing about that except what I was told. But one of the greatest accomplishments that I had when I was there was that I resigned as the pastor of that church in a blackout. And I woke up two weeks later and I read that letter and said, My God, you're unemployed. 
And I didn't know what to do. I was 48 years old. What does a 48-year-old drunken preacher do? He has nothing. You go home to mommy. Long cord there. And uh, so I did. And I spent a little bit of time there, and, and all I did was drink. And then, you know, something fabulous happened to me on the 25th of May, back in 1974. I had a couple of beers. I cooked a steak, and I couldn't eat it. And I went to bed at 8 o'clock that night. And the next morning, I could not get up. It was a Sunday. I could not get out of that bed. My feet were working. I could wiggle my fingers and everything else. But something had happened to me. This was gone. There was nothing left. There was nothing up here to know or not to know. That was gone too. And I spoke three of the most difficult words that this arrogant, egotistical person ever could speak. I need help. And they hauled me off to a treatment center. And I sat there, and a couple of days I began to feel better, you know, and I said, what the heck am I doing here? I don't need this. And you've got to understand that my arrogance and my egotism connected, continued to, to exist in me for, for, for a period of about seven months. I don't think anything I heard had any meaning to me until I was out of that treatment center for about seven months. But I had a good time there, I need to tell you that. I had a wonderful time looking at these sick people and trying to help them and and first of all, they locked me up in a, in a ward with a bunch of drug addicts. Now, at that time, uh, the drugs were not a big thing in our life. We were 14 carat alcoholics, I'll tell you that. But I had a real interesting experience there. While I was locked up the first day in that drug ward, that one of the, one of the young fellows there looked like a real tough just off the street, you know. He walked up to me and he said, You going to give me any trouble, old man? First of all, I resented the old man bit. And secondly, I said, uh, oh, no. I said, I'm not going to bother you. He said, well, don't mess around with me. If you do, I'll cut your balls off. I said, wait a minute. What's going on here? So I complained to the personnel at the hospital. I said, you got me in the wrong place here. I'm not here to get those things cut off. I'm here to, you know, do whatever is done. So they moved me over to this nice little treatment center out there. It was one story, fabulous living, and I had a great time there. And when I left, my counselor came up to me and he said, Now, he said, Russ. I thought, I wonder why he doesn't call me Reverend Killian. What the hell's the matter with him? He said, Russ, he said, you know, you are the classic example of a middle-aged alcoholic. And I was offended. First of all, I didn't like the, the middle-aged bit. You know, I thought I was close to, if there was anybody that could be Jesus Christ's assistant, that was me. And so I just told him that. I felt real bad. But I did love the word classic. You know, anybody else here being called a classic alcoholic? So I thought, man, this is great. They know who's here. And I really enjoyed that time. And then one of my friends in X group, and I was in, he said to me when I was getting ready to leave, uh, he said, Rusty, you know, he said, you're the classic example. Or, excuse me, you are, you are the philosopher of X group. And I thought, well, thank you, Carl. That's one of the nicest things anybody ever said to me. And it took me a little while to figure out exactly what he was trying to tell me. And I can kind of relate that in a little story I heard once about a couple of ladies that were coming back to celebrate their class reunion and hadn't seen each other for 25 years. And, and the one lady uh, said to the other one, and this one was dressed up real fancy, and she talked to this rather plain-looking lady there. She said, well, Helen, she said, how's everything been? She said, fine. 
How's everything going? Great. What about you? Said, well, you know, when I got married to my husband, he took me on a three-week honeymoon in the Mediterranean. And this lady said, well, that's really fantastic. And uh, she said, you know what he gave me for a wedding presents? 17-room mansion, servants and all. The lady said, how fantastic. She said, look at that rock. Just gave me that for the 25th wedding anniversary. And she took it. She said, that is really fantastic. And then the conversation switched. And, and the real classy gal said to the other gal, said, anything happened to you exciting in the past 25 years? Did your husband do anything for you that was neat? And she thought for a minute and she said, yes. She said, he sent me to charm school. And she said, well, what, what did you learn at charm school? And she said, I learned to say fantastic instead of bullshit. That's it. That's it. Yeah. That was the message loud and clear. And I need to tell you that my wife is not a dumb person by any means. That while I was in treatment, she sold everything I owned. And she rented two U-Hauls. And she took herself and everything in that house after having a three-day garage sale. And she rented two U-Hauls and took herself and the property and the three little younger children, rather, and moved out to Ohio, never said a word. And when I came out, there was nothing any place, and I didn't even know where they were. But, you know, being a good alcoholic, I said, I'm going to find out where she is because I know she misses me. So I did. I finally found out that she had moved out to Ohio and she was living in a little shack that had cockroaches and rats and everything else in it on the Ohio River there. And there she was with the three. So I just, I was in real good shape, you know, so I thought, man, I remember once she told me, if you just quit drinking, everything would be fine. So I went out to Ohio and I found her. And I knocked on the door and I thought she'd rush into my arms immediately and uh, because I had done something magnificent, I had been to get help. That's what she'd always wanted. And she walked up to the door and looked through the screen door and she said, what can we do for you? And I thought, what an attitude. What a strange person. Anyhow, I sat there in 15 minutes. I talked my way back into the house and had a great time. Now, while I was there, she kicked me out three times because that wasn't working. And uh, I got on her nerves, and every, every time the past would flash me front of her, get out of here. So I punished her. I'd take the car, go out to the West Coast, charge everything to the Bank of America, send a bill to her. Got to the point she couldn't afford to send me out anymore. So she let me stay. But I wasn't allowed to eat with the family. She was getting out that old biblical approach again. And I'd sit there, and she'd come in and fix supper, you know, and, and she'd uh, say, time for supper. I'd get up, and she said, not you. Not you. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So I'd have to wait until everybody went to bed at night. And I'd sneak in the kitchen and get a little bit of food there. Things like that. But you know, a marvelous thing happened on the way. That while we were there, we had no money, there was no social life. She, she had been on aid to dependent children and, you know, all of that good stuff. And then I showed up and messed that up and things like that. Uh, she said, we have no social life. I said, you're right. 
I said, why don't you come with me to the meetings? I said, and I've been going to my meetings every night, see. I spent the first ten years of my recovery going to anywhere from five to seven meetings every week because that's what this guy needed to get rid of that ego and that arrogance and everything else. And uh, she said, well, I might as well. So she came, and when I went to AA, she went to Al-Anon. And I noticed that after about six months, that things began to change. And she made a remarkable statement to me, you know, at first. She said, if you ever take another drink, Buster, you're out of here. And I thought, well, look who's talking, you know. And then after about six months, she came to me and said, do you remember that time when I told you that if you drank again, that I, that I was going to kick you out? And I said, oh, yeah, I remember that. She said, well, let me tell you something. I changed my mind. I said, oh, God, now what? She's probably going to boot me out now. She said, I want to tell you something. If you ever decide to drink again, I want you to know that I don't know what I will do, but I will guarantee you this, that I will take care of me this time, not you. I said, that smart-ass Al-Anon bunch again. Working her over like that. But let me tell you something. I never forgot that that was one of the most powerful lessons that I have learned in my life. And she was telling me, and I finally realized that, that she had a right to hurt. That she had a right to hurt after what it... I thought after all that treatment I got, my, why don't she just forget the past? Let's talk about it once and put it away and let it go. And I didn't realize what was happening in her life. At any rate, I finally got this little job working for the Alaska, uh, working for a little machine shop, two of us, uh, making stakes for the Alaskan pipeline. I thought, this is great, you know. And I was tired because of handling steel every day. And these are communion hands, not dirty working hands. But anyhow, uh, you know, it was in that little machine shop that I had a, a powerful spiritual awakening. There were no flashing lights or anything like that. But when I was just doing a little grinding on one of those things, you know, I just turned the machine off. And I said, my God, everything they've told me is right. And that was when I began the, the great journey of dealing with the egotism and the arrogance and, and thinking that I knew it all and things like that. And I began to really take seriously the program that I have. And uh, it has paid off uh, ever since then. And you know, one of the first things I had to change was my attitude. And somebody told me that once. I used to sit there and, and I didn't like to mix with the plebeians there. I thought I'll sit over here on the side. So I'd pull my chair back away from the table and sit out there. And I remember some guy once, you know, who used to, he was, he was a plumber's helper is what he was. And, and, uh, I didn't think he amounted to anything. And he looked at me one time and he said, how come you don't sit with us? You too good for us? He said, you need to change your attitude. And I didn't like that guy for a long time because I thought he was arrogant. Okay. But he was right. And I found that over the period of time. The more I learn how to change my attitude with the help of people like you in this program, the better things get in my life. And you know, changing your attitude reminds me of a neat little story I heard once about this great big Texan, six feet nine inches tall, weighed about 289 pounds, and he fell in love with this little five foot one inch brunette. And he courted her, and he said one day to her, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And they had this wonderful big wedding, and they went out to the nearby big town in order to have their honeymoon night. And of course, you all know what's supposed to happen on those nights. 
So anyhow, he went in the bathroom to get ready for what was about to happen. He came out with that mammoth pair of blue jeans and he threw them at her and he said, put those pants on. So she climbed down in there, you don't open the zipper and said, I can't fit in these pants. I can't wear these pants. And he said, as long as you remember that, we'll get along fine. I'll wear the pants in this family. And not to be outdone, she went in and got ready for what was about to happen. And she came out with this little pair of panties. And she flipped them at him and said, put those panties on. And he kind of held them up and looked at them and he said, I can't get in these panties. And she said, if you don't change your attitude, you never will. <laughs> change your attitude. Boy. Now it's hard for me to do that, you know. When, when you think you know everything and when, when you know the world is supposed to be there's your servant, and it's real hard to do that. But I kept meeting people in the program and I just kept going and going and going and, and the first thing you know, I guess some of those things began to wear off on me. And then I began to realize that I was able to determine the difference between a federal case and what wasn't. And what was really important in life. And you know, I found out that I was made up of two powerful things in my life that have made all the difference to me, and that is that I am a feeling person. And that relationships are the rest of my life. And that's what all of us are about. And I got to, real, I got to realize that, because I remember when I was a kid, my dad would always tell me, and I, and I was sensitive and tender and compassionate, and I would cry because I had pimples and things like that. And my dad, you know, would get drunk and he'd say to me, Oh, Russell, shut up that ball in yours and get in the other room so we don't have to listen to you whimpering all the time. And I learned to shut down completely. Boy, you know what an, what an awakening it was and what a struggle and what a blessing it was to be able to become that feeling person as I went into this program and, and to be able to talk and say, Not what I think, but this is how I feel today. Uh, and I began to notice that when I did that, people cared. Uh, that people would listen to me and that I, I moved my chair up right around the table again. I sat there with those people and really enjoyed the, the thing that was going along. You know, I've learned something in the program that has been so powerful to me and, and it's been such a blessing in my life that I know that if I leave, if I leave the circle, I will die. Um, everything I've always wanted. I have found in the circle of AA the love, the peace, to be able to go to bed at night, you know, without that conscience tormenting me, to get up the next morning and to know that it's going to be a great day for me. If I do what my program teaches me to do, no matter what happens in the way of external things, that it's going to be a wonderful thing for me. The joy of knowing that everything's going to work out okay and that if, uh, if I need any help, I've got all kinds of folks out there that are willing to help me. Uh, and I think above all the freedom. To me, that has been the most amazing and the most dynamic and the most powerful thing that happened to this guy. And that is that I have finally become free to be what my Creator has always wanted me to be. And uh, he gave me the tools to do that, not just in the principles of the program, but he gave me the tools to do that through people like you. I need to say a little bit to you about the relationship that I had with God because I think most people assume that if you're a preacher, 
uh, the Lutheran preacher, Jim, you know, where we do everything a little bit, uh, that uh, what we do, uh, you know, is to, is to get along and, and do what we're supposed to do. And, and, and I thought I knew God, and I did. I knew the Bible. I knew all about him. And when I got into this program, guess what? I know him now. That's the difference. It's not important to me now to impress anybody by telling them where anything they want to know is in the, where it's in the Bible or anything like that. I'll look it up with it and hope we find it. But what is important is that the message that I heard in this program reinforced the very fact of what my life is supposed to be all about. And those are the very principles that I have talked about and that I have shared with people over the years. And for the first time in my life, it began to be meaningful to me. And when it became meaningful to me, you know, I, I, have, I have this conviction today that I will not allow anyone to ever take away what my God has given to me. I will do whatever it takes in order to protect that gift that has been given to me, and I don't want to give that up. Uh, I have found also in this program a power to do things that I never thought that I could do before. You know, one of the earliest realizations was, you know, I, I was a great preacher. I'd get people in the sick and say, oh, let's pray. And we would do that, and we would pray, you know, and say, God, you know, blah, 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 blah. and then I'd just go home and forget it, which I think a lot of us probably do. You know, we're looking for that great miracle from the sky. Let God wave his magic wand and make everything right. What I learned is that he never did for me what I can do for myself. And because I didn't know what to do for myself, he sent you into my life. And you taught me. And you know that when we become teachable and listen to the other people in the program who probably have far greater wisdom than we do many times, that we begin to realize, my goodness, why didn't I think of that? Well, we didn't. But the power is there. I have a very firm, strong conviction today. And that's why I still go to AA meetings. Because I believe with all of my heart that when I offer my prayers to God and ask him, you know, please show me what your will for my life is today and give me the power to carry that out, that he answers those prayers through the mouths of other people. That God speaks to me through other people. And that when I don't go to meetings, I'm going to miss something. And there'll be the most powerful message in the world that I need to hear that night. And I wasn't there to hear it. So that has reaffirmed my conviction, you know, that I need to do that. But there's a lot of other things that have happened to me. And I always like to emphasize upon what happened, what it's like today, because today it is, I have a dynamic type of life. First of all, you people taught me how not to drink. I learned a long time ago now that if I don't take the first drink, I can't get drunk. Isn't that amazing? Never dawned on me before that if I didn't drink, I couldn't get drunk. And I also learned that if I don't take the first drink and don't get drunk, I probably will not have the same kind of troubles and problems that I had before. And it's proven to be true also. That's the way that thing works. I learned in this program how to love. Because I saw a lot of love in action, and, and it was sincere, and I felt it, and I knew it. I never knew how to love. I thought loving somebody was like, uh, you do something for them, and, and then I'll do something for them, or they do something for me, and then i got to pay them back, and we got to keep these scales balanced properly, you know, so that nobody gets ahead of that. And I learned that love is just giving what you have to give to another person. You don't have to worry about whether or not they appreciate it, 
or whether they understand it or whether they even care. You taught me how to love again by showing that love to me. I remember back in 1978, I went up to, to Northern Illinois and I brought my aged parents down here. They were both in their 80s at the time and my wife and I provided a home for them uh, to live in until they died. And uh, it, was, it was fun. It was exciting. It was good. And, uh, you know, I, I came to terms with my dad and all kinds of things like that because of what this program has helped me to do. But I remember on the 28th of January in, in 1980 that my dad was in the hospital and uh, I'd stopped to see him in the morning. And he didn't look too good to me. But anyhow, about 4 o'clock that afternoon, I told my wife, I said, well, Barbara, I said, I'm going to take a little snack here in the newspaper. I'm going over to the hospital and sit with dad. So I remember walking in the room there and I found him dead. So I got on the phone and I called all of my children and called my brothers and sister, you know, and uh, told them we're going to have Grandpa's funeral, so we'll look for you. had a son in Rockford, Illinois. She, he stopped in St. Louis and picked up my number four daughter. Uh, she had a two-year-old girl, and she had a little four-month-old baby boy, Miles Benjamin. And uh, they came down, and when they got there that night, the little baby died of crib death. Low crib death. See? And you know who the first people were there? When the message down? Folks like you. The AA people and the Al Anon people. And, and, and you stayed the longest and you offered us the best things and, and you held us the tightest and you prayed the best with us. And I never forgot that. That's love in action. A couple of years later, my mom died and I had a little 39 year old uh, sister at the time and they all came to, to grandma's funeral. And let me, let me just interject this. If you don't think this program has the power, I was able to preach the sermon at my mother's funeral and to share with everybody there the good things that I learned. Anyhow, my sister decided she lived in Washington State and uh, that night of the funeral, she dropped dead in the house. And again, guess who was there first? Now, I don't want to disparage the church people. They were there too, and they were kind, and they were generous, and things like that, but not like you. There's a difference. And once again, I felt the tightness of the love when you hugged me, and I felt the joy that was in the, the encouragement that you offered to me, and I knew when you walked out the door, there's hope, and it's going to be okay, and it's going to work out. So I thank you for that. You taught me how to love. And today I can give that to people. I could never do that before. It was always stilted. I never meant what I give today comes from the inside of the heart where it is full of meaning and feeling. And I thank God for that because I could never do that before. You also taught me how to live. You taught me that life is not on my terms, but that life comes and life happens no matter what you want or how you'd like it to be. But you taught me how to accept that. You taught me how to turn things over to the care of God as I understood him, and to realize that if I do that, he's going to give me the power that I need to deal with that. And that even if I have to go through those difficult times, I know, I know, that it's going to work out and be okay. You also taught me how to cry, and that was something that I had, uh, I guess, wanted to do all my life, but I wasn't supposed to. I was supposed to be a man and not cry. And I can recall the many times that I got drunk and that I didn't get drunk. And I'd sit in the room when my, my family, my wife and the daughters were watching TV and I'd ridicule them and make fun of them because they would cry when there was something tender 
on television. And today, I cry with the best of them. Man, oh man, I cry with the best of them. And, uh, you know, my family has been restored. Uh, you know, my wife and I have a wonderful relationship. We, we respect each other. We treat each other with dignity and with honor. And uh, we don't fight and we don't argue. Uh, she had a hard time for about two and a half years because she wanted to throw up the past all the time. And, you know, the big thing was, after what you did. And I'm thinking on my breath, you psycho bitch, you haven't changed yet. You know, nothing has happened. But I didn't tell her that outside because I knew better than that. One of the, the things that I think is, is really powerful to me is that I have learned how uh, to care again. Uh, I will do whatever it takes, wherever and whenever I have the opportunity, as long as I'm fit, to uh, answer the call to, to service. And sometimes I had to say no. But I know that God has other people to do that. I'm not the only person in the program. I'm not the only person that has experienced the joy and the happiness that I'm sharing with you this morning. I know that there are you people sitting out there who can do the same things. And I want to tell you another thing that I found out in this program. I have more friends today, and they're the best friends in the world. And do you know something? Most of them I don't even know yet, because they're folks like you. And I know that there's nobody sitting out there this morning that if I came to you and asked you for help, that would turn me away or to say, I'm going to do the best I can to hurt you. I know that you'd be there for me and that you'd be there to help me. I still have a lot of character defects. I still work on the ego. I still work on the arrogance. I still work on all of the things that have always been a part of my life. But I want to guarantee that I've made some progress. And for that, I have to be grateful uh, for that. You know, somebody told me once that there are three you's. Uh, one of them is the one other people think you are. And, and, you know, I used to manipulate people and they thought I was wonderful when I wasn't. And the second you is the one you think you are. And uh, we can do a pretty good number on ourselves if we're not careful. And the third one is the real you. And that's the one I found. That's the one that uh, they got lost with all the alcohol and, and all the anger and all the misery and things like that. And I have discovered that real you again. And I'm kind of liking what I'm finding. And I found out that I'm the kind of person, you know, uh, that has a lot of good characteristics to go along with the character defects and that if I emphasize those and if I pursue those and if I practice those then some good things uh, are really going to happen in my life. I probably should tell you that the psycho bitch has improved a lot too. Um, she today is a, a family counselor in a, in a, a state facility uh, and, and she does a real good job of taking care of herself. And, uh, and I'm real grateful for that. I, I work in the field today. I got a job where I come and go as I please, which is not too shabby. And, uh, you know, I just work four days a week and uh, have a good time uh, working with people. I promise they all call in drugs and family also. I do a lot of family work. Uh, and I enjoy that immensely. But there's nothing, there's nothing that I enjoy more than just being alive today. It's kind of an exciting thing to look back upon your life and to realize, uh, you know, for the first, 40, first 48 years, except those first couple where I didn't know what anything was about, uh, that I don't have to live that way anymore. And one of the most powerful motivating factors in my life and one of the models that I try to pursue every day is that I don't ever, ever, ever want to live that way again. And I know that when I have the help of the people in the program, that's the way it's going to be. 
Now, having shared all that good stuff with you here this morning, I have a little closing thought that I want to leave with you because I think it's real important, at least it is to me, and it's a story about two grasshoppers. And this first grasshopper fell in this bowl of thick, rich cream. And he said, holy smoke, am I ever in trouble. I don't know what to do. Uh, I'm just miserable. He just kept feeling sorry for me. Oh, my God, I've never been in trouble like this before. And he thought of all the problems he had and all that kind of stuff. The first thing you know, he drowned in that bowl of thick, uh, thick, rich cream. And the second grasshopper said, holy smokes, after he fell in. Holy smokes, am I ever in trouble. I better do something faster. I'll never get out of this thing alive. So he just started kicking up his little grasshopper heels, you know, and he kept singing his little grasshopper song. And the first thing you know, he turned that cream into solid butter. And he walked away to safety. That's what happened to me. I had a choice. I could be like grasshopper number one and feel sorry for myself, you know, because of the problems that I had and everything else. And I could drown myself in my sorrow. I could just sit on my pity pot all the time and just whimper and whine and moan. But I'm going to tell you something. When you sit on your pity pot, all you get is a ring around your hiney. Nothing more. And if you sit on that thing long enough, it'll get callous. And if you've got a callous there, you're not going to feel anything. And if you don't feel anything, you're not really living. I could be grasshopper number two. And I could look at what happened to my life and sit back and to realize, my gosh, my goodness, what is I better do something about this. And you know, you can just kick up your little old AA heels and sing the little song of the 12 steps and just keep doing that. And the first thing you know, you take those old shaky underpinnings of yours, you turn them into good solid underpinnings and you walk away one day at a time, one month at a time, one year at a time until the day that God calls you from this earth. And all the way on the journey, you become happy and you become joyous and you become free. I have chosen by the grace of God and through the help of people like you to be like grasshopper number two. And I thank you for that. And I praise God for all of you. And I appreciate the uh, invitation to come over and share with you today. And uh, I'll just close by saying, y'all have a wonderful day unless you got other plans. Thank you.